Good afternoon. Well, last night we looked at the uh, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane. Where what we're doing for those of you that weren't able to make it last night, we are looking at the closing scenes of the life of Christ, and we're doing some parallels and comparison between the closing scenes of the life of Christ and the closing scenes of this earth's history, the crisis that Jesus went through and the crisis that we will go through. And as we look at the crisis Jesus went through in the last 48 hours of his life, there we will find tools that are necessary to see us through our crisis in the final close of this earth's history. Now, last night we looked at the subject of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We made a little comparison between Jesus and the disciples. And um, as I concluded the presentation last night, I gave four practical tips to uh, either continue or to start off having a prayer experience like Jesus. Does anybody who was here last night remember what the first one was? Have a what? Place to pray. That's right. Number two was to have a what? A time to pray. So we have a specific place. And incidentally, I don't recommend that that specific place is your bed. Amen. Thank you, Tom. For obvious reasons, uh, get out of your bed to have and find some place outside of the comfort of your bed because beds were made for a specific thing and it wasn't for praying. <laughs> Although you can do it there, you will, chances are you'll find yourself nodding off. So find a specific place to pray, then have a time to pray. Now you may choose to have more than one time, but before you can have more than one time, you have to have... At least one time, okay? So have a place to pray, have a time to pray. And then the third thing was to pray what? Learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. Now we're so tuned or so uh, trained to pray inside of our heads, but there's something to actually verbalizing your prayers in the secrecy of your prayer closet with the Father. That's what Jesus did in the early mornings as he was out talking to his Father in various places. So learn to pray aloud where only God can hear. And Ellen White actually tells us that we should do this. And then the fourth thing was, if your mind wanders, what? Bring it back. That's right. So if your mind wanders, and we all are susceptible to this, our mind kind of gets caught up in the day's activities, what needs to be done. We're thinking about our to-do list or whatever it may be. The devil is really good at reminding us what we need to do in the morning when we're supposed to be praying with the Lord, isn't he? He reminds us of all these things and kind of distract us. So if your mind wanders, just bring it right back. Keep plowing through that prayer time together with the Lord. It's not separating you. Just come back, bring your thoughts back where they need to be, and continue that communion with God. These four practical tips have revolutionized my personal prayer life, and I hope that it does the same for you as well. A passage of scripture just in passing here that I was thinking about this morning. Jot it down. Psalms 143 verse 8. This is a prayer that you can pray maybe tonight uh, or tomorrow morning when you start your devotional time. I won't tell you what it is just so you have curiosity. Don't look it up right now. (laughs) Just write it down. Psalms 143 verse 8. In fact, memorize it. It's a wonderful Bible passage. Look at it tomorrow morning for your devotional time. You will be blessed. I know you will. 
today what we're going to do is we're going to continue the narrative of the final scenes of the life of Christ. As I mentioned last night, this is going to end up being an eight-part series, and I'm not going to be able to do all of that here, obviously. Uh, So I'm just going to kind of start things off and let you continue the study in your own personal devotional time. But we're looking at the mob today, uh, the crisis at the close. We're looking at the mob that came and accosted Jesus just after his time in the garden. Are my slides working? Okay, before we begin, we must always start with a word of prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together this this afternoon. Father, what a rich Sabbath it has been so far. What a beautiful day it is outside, the wonderful sunshine, the beautiful sermon that we heard this morning challenging us to love as Jesus loves, to love as God loves. Father, as we turn our attention back to the theme of Inspire Ohio, the crisis at the close, Lord, we're looking at your son because he's the great example in our lives. And Father, we're looking for tools that will help us to become more like him. And as we heard in the special music, Oh, to be like thee. This is the song of our hearts, Lord. We want to be like your son. Send your spirit's presence to be with us here now, I pray. And guide us, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. This is our theme Bible passage. Revelation chapter 14. And verse 4, we're looking at the characteristics of the 144,000 here. The Bible tells us many characteristics that they have. We're looking at a specific one here in verse 4. The Bible tells us this. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, meaning they are spiritually pure. That's not what we're looking at. The next thing is what we're looking at. The Bible says, these are they which what? What do they do? They follow the Lamb where? Wherever he goes, they don't just follow the lamb in fair weather. They're not fair weather Christians, but they follow the lamb wherever the lamb chooses to take him. And we looked last night in inspiration where the servant of the Lord tells us that in order for us to follow Christ in the courts above, we must first learn to follow him here below. And so as we're looking at the crisis at the close, it's just before us. We looked at it last night. Uh, Ellen White tells us, she told us 117 years ago, that we are right there at the end, the crisis that is about to close just before us. And as we're looking at this crisis, we're closer to it now than we've ever been before. We want to be like Jesus. We want to follow the Lamb wherever He may take us. If it means opposition, we're there with Him. If it means trials, we're there with him. If it means betrayal, we're there with him. We follow the lamb wherever he takes us. Amen? Amen. Now, we also looked at how we are, as I mentioned, nearing this time of the crisis, the close of this earth's history. And as we are getting closer to this time of crisis, as I mentioned, we're closer now than we ever were before. There are many warnings that Jesus is giving us in his word, many warnings that he gave to his disciples, which we're going to look at a little bit later on, some of those warnings. But what we want to do that right now is we want to take a look at the characteristics of Jesus in the closing scenes of his life. Last night, 
we established the first tool. We're going to look at three tools in our time together that Jesus used. We're putting tools in our tool basket, basket, our spiritual tool basket. And the first tool that we looked at last night is that Jesus prayed while others, what? While the disciples slept, we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He was praying. Now, in Testimonies, volume 2, page 205, the servant of the Lord tells us that the sleeping disciples are a representative of a church who is sleeping in the most perilous time of earth's history. So as we look at this this Garden of Gethsemane experience, as we did last night, what we do is we find two groups there in the garden. We find the disciples who are sleeping. That's representing the Laodicean church who is asleep in the perilous time of earth's history. And then we find those who are following the example of Jesus who are in tune to the time that they are living in and they are spending time communing with their father, preparing for the crisis at the close. We also looked at early writings, page 269, where the servant of the Lord tells us that there will be those in the end of earth's history who will have a similar prayer experience to Jesus in the sense that as Jesus was in the garden, he sweat great drops of blood. And as we see this passage here in early writings, she tells us that there will be those who with bitter cries and with perspiration pouring off of their brows will make their requests known to the Father, tapping into Him as their source of strength. That's the example that I want to follow. How about you? Last night, as we looked at Gethsemane, what we find is that it all started right there. What we look at from Gethsemane on is just the natural outflow of what happened in the garden. And the focus of what we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to look at the results of what happened in the life of Jesus after Gethsemane, what happened in the life of the disciples after Gethsemane as the crisis closes in upon them. What is the result? What was the effect of Jesus' prayer time and the disciples' time of rest? Now, I established last night as Jesus was praying, it wasn't just three short prayers as it appears to be in the Gospels, but there were hours of agonizing prayer somewhere between Between the time of nine and midnight, Jesus was praying to the Father, seeking for strength and encouragement to meet the crisis that was just before him. Now, turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study. Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, and we're going to begin in verse 41. We're looking at the sequel to the Garden of Gethsemane. What was the results of Jesus' prayer? What was the results of the disciples' sleepiness? Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 43. The Bible says this. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast... And he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then the Bible says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Are we going to be, need to be strengthened in the final crisis? Yes, sir. 
Does God have ways of strengthening his children of which we know nothing of? We looked last night at this peculiar quote where, where we're told that Jesus came back to the disciples. You remember, he came back several times in his prayer in the garden. And she tells us that the reason why he came back is because he was looking for human sympathy and encouragement from his disciples. And as he came back each time, he found them on the ground sleeping. And she tells us that it was a discouragement and disappointing to Jesus. But here we find that God has a way of encouraging his son in a way that he knew nothing about. And there's Jesus as he's praying to his father. Remember, as it, it's a crescendo as it's getting closer to the end of his time in the garden and closer to the time when the mob is coming to take him. Jesus' prayer gains intensity and earnestness as he gets closer to this time. And now he's pouring out his heart to the father and a ray of light shines down from heaven. And there's an angel of the Lord that comes and strengthens him. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this, this afternoon that that angel was more effective in strengthening Jesus than the disciples ever could have been. Listen to this. This is from the book Desire of Ages, page 692. Listen to this beautiful description. It says this, The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict drew to its close. Satan and his confederacy of evil, the legions of apostasy, watched intently with uh, this great crisis in the work of redemption. The powers of good and of evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ's thrice-repeated prayer. I want you to get this mental image in your mind. Jesus is there in the garden, sweating great drops of blood. The disciples are just a, a stone's cast away. They're knocked out cold, sleeping on the ground. Jesus is intently praying to his Father. The shaft of light from heaven shines down upon him. The angel comes and is next to him. But there's a whole host of unfallen beings and fallen beings who are naked to the human eye, who are sitting there watching the Savior of the earth intently to see what is going to be the outcome of his thrice-repeated prayer. Beautiful image. He goes on. Angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer, but this might not be. No way of escape was found for the Son of God. In this awful crisis, what was it, everybody? In this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the angels opened a light... Or sorry, uh, the heavens opened a light, shone from amid the uh, stormy darkness of the crisis hour, and the mighty angel who stands in the presence of God, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. Listen to this. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it. With the assurance of the Father's love, he came to give power to the human or divine human supplant. 
So here's, here's the picture. The angel Gabriel comes. Gabriel, as you look at uh, the birth of Jesus, Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, I come from the presence of the Father. I come from the presence of God. So Ellen White tells us it was the angel who stood in the presence of God. It was the angel Gabriel who took the place of the fallen angel Lucifer. And as he comes down from heaven, he's standing there next to Jesus, strengthening him and encouraging him as the cup trembles in his hand. He's fearful to drink it, lest that drinking of that cup would eternally separate him from his father. Oh, brothers and sisters, we definitely would do well to take a thoughtful moment in the contemplation of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, and to take it scene by scene and let the imagination grasp it because it's beautiful to behold. But it goes on. Let me read this final part of this paragraph. He, Gabriel, pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as a result of his suffering. He assured him that his father is greater and more powerful than Satan, that his death would result in the utter, utter discomfiture of Satan and the kingdom of this world would be given to the saints of the Most High. He told him that he would see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for he would see a multitude of the human race saved, eternally saved. That's just what Jesus needed. Right there at that moment, the angel Gabriel came and told him precisely the words that Jesus needed to hear. You know, the disciples probably would have just patted him on the back and said, Jesus, we're here for you. The angel Gabriel says, no, look up to your father. Stop looking around you, but look up at the father. He is accepting of your sacrifice. And there will be a whole host of the human race that will be saved, eternally saved, because of what you are doing here in the garden. Now, this is right at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane. You could hear the angry mob coming at this point. And I want to read another quote that tells you the result of the angel Gabriel's visit. Listen to this. It's just stunning. Desire of Ages 694. She says this, Christ's agony did not cease. Did it cease? No. But his depression and discouragement left him. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus depressed and discouraged in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yes or no? According to inspiration, he was. She says, the crisis did not leave him, but his depression and discouragement left. She goes on. The storm had in no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. He came forth, listen, calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested on his blood-stained face. Let your imagination grasp that scene. What is it like? What would it have been like to see Jesus come forth from that garden with that blood-stained face, with calmness and serenity and peace as the angry mob comes before him. You know, Scripture tells us, jot this down in your notes, Psalms, uh, Psalms 34, verse 7. The Bible says, The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. Can you finish it? And what? Delivereth them. 
Do we have a promise, yes or no? Do we have a promise that, that something similar will happen for God's people in a time of trial and difficulty, yes or no? Yes, we do. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and will deliver them. Now, this word deliver is very peculiar. It's actually, uh, it actually is defined in the Hebrew to equip for war. What does it mean? We, we traditionally think of the word deliver to be like, okay, you know, the trial comes, boom, I'm delivered out of it. But that's not what it means. In the original language, it means to equip for war. The angel came to the side of Jesus not to take him away from that discouragement, not to take the cup away from him, but to equip him for battle. And so we have the promise that the angel of the Lord, the angels of God will come and deliver us and strengthen us as we come into our hour of crisis to equip us for war. So go with me, if you would, in your Bibles. To John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And we're going to begin in verse 4. John chapter 18 and verse 4. So we've looked at the garden. We've looked at the angel that came to strengthen Jesus. We have the promise that angels will come and strengthen us as well to equip us for the battle that is just before us. Now what I want to do is I want to look at the uh, result, as I mentioned, between, the, the, um, the, between Jesus and between the disciples. Now let me just make sure I'm on the right slide here. So I'm just going to kind of get myself together here. There we are. Okay, so we're on the right track now. Okay, John chapter 18 and verse 4, the Bible says this. Jesus therefore knowing that all things that should come upon him, knowing all these things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. So we're letting our imagination grasp it scene by scene. So Jesus is coming out. We see him in, the, in, our, in our mental imagination. He's calm. He's dignified. He's put together. There's a divine peace that's on his face, even though it is stained with the marks of blood, the telltale signs of the past three hours of prayer. He comes forth now, and the, 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 the mob is there, being led by Judas, one of the twelve. And as they're coming within voice, uh, dis the distance of his voice, Jesus asks them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. What does the Bible say happened? They fell backwards. Now, now, the Bible doesn't tell us all the details here, but in the book Desire of Ages, she tells us the reason why they fell backwards is because Gabriel came between Jesus and the mob at that point. And as Gabriel came between Jesus and the mob and that divine presence shined down upon him, she says they all fell back like dead men. At that very point, 
Jesus could have easily escaped. Right? And in fact, his disciples even assumed that that's probably what he would have done because they had seen him do that a number of times. There are many times that the crowd tried to kill him or, or push him over the edge or, or some evil plot to try to take his life, but his time had not yet come, and so Jesus miraculously was preserved during that time. And the disciples had seen this time and time again, and so here it is, another divine manifestation. They're thinking, of course, he's going to take off at this point, but what does Jesus do? He asked the question again. Did you not get it the first time? Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And at this point, Gabriel is no longer there. And Jesus now only has the words of the angel Gabriel that he heard and the faith that he has built up in his heart through his prayer time and devotional time with his father. That's what he has to lean on at this point. Now... I really would give a lot of money if I could just see it play out. The look on Judas's face as he gets up with the rest of the mob. She tells us he fell backwards as well, like a dead person. And so, so, so the, the, as the divine presence of the angel Gabriel is dissipating and going away, they're all kind of getting their bearings together. You've got to think about this. These are, these are some Roman soldiers. These are the priests who are religious men who shouldn't be afraid of a divine manifestation. These, this is Judas who's been in the presence of Jesus for the past three and a half years. And here they are like dead men on the ground. Now it's going away. The presence of the angel Gabriel is going back to heaven. The darkness is closing back in around them. And now all you can see is the flicker of the torches that they brought with them as they were coming to the garden. And now Judas stands up and in an act of divine defiance, he walks up to the master, to his Messiah, to the one who was to purchase his salvation and he lays on his lip or on his cheek the uh, betrayal kiss as a symbol that to everybody else that this was the man that they were to take. What hardness of heart Judas must have had to do that after such a display of divinity. But as Judas falls on the neck of Jesus and places that kiss on his cheek, what does Jesus do? Matthew chapter 26. We don't need to theorize here. Let's see what the Bible says. Matthew 26, 29. This is an important point. So if your neighbor is falling asleep, give them a gentle reminder. Matthew 26, 49 and 50. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, and I, and I, I, I mean this in all sincerity. These next two verses that I'm going to read to you, are two of the most shocking verses that I have read in the last 48 hours of the life of Christ. It just fills me with a profound awe. Listen to what it says. Now he that betrayed, uh, betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, 
And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus. What did Jesus call, uh, call Judas? He called him friend. In the Greek there, that is a kindly address that is given to a good friend. Simply means Jesus meant what he was saying. Can you believe that? This man is betraying Jesus into the hands of the high priest. This man who has walked with Jesus for three and a half years, hailing him as the master. Judas, who had performed miracles like the other disciples, who had preached eloquently, who was there and listened to Jesus and saw him feed the 5,000 people. This man places the betrayal kiss upon Jesus' cheek. And Jesus turns to him and calls him friend. And I ask you the question this afternoon, what would you have done? done if you were in Jesus' place. That's what I had to ask myself. Because I know my humanity. And if I knew somebody that was that close to me was betraying me, my humanity would want to make a fist and punch him right in the face. But Jesus looks at him with deep love and compassion. And you can hear the love in the voice of Jesus as he turns to Judas and he says, friend. Put yourself there. What would you have done? How would you have reacted if you were in Jesus' place? Now, you might not think that this is a very important question to think about. But Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 36, jot it down. Matthew 10, 36. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. A man's foes shall be they of his what? His own household. So, Scripture, Jesus is telling us here that in the final crisis before the end of the world comes, that some of the deepest pain is going to come from those that are within our own house. Lord, have mercy. Listen, what Jesus did when he said to Judas, when he called him friend, that was not human. That was divine. For no humanity could do do anything like that. But when divinity lives within the heart of humanity, even such a betrayal as Judas uh, did to Jesus, and even such a betrayal that others may do to us in the final crisis, we, as Jesus did, will be able to look at them with love and compassion for their eternal salvation and still have love in our hearts for them. She says, they of our own household shall be our worst foes. I wrote this next part out because I wanted it to come out just the way it is written. I'm fearful that many of us are not ready to stand in a time right here where Jesus is standing. The garden behind him, the disciples around him, the mob in front of him, and Judas in his intimate space. Many of us can't even retain sympathy, love, and compassion for our brethren when they mistreat and offend us over little things. When they talk about us behind their backs, when they say offensive things, when they point out our inconsistencies in our lives, what are we tempted to do? 
we get offended. Am I preaching the truth? We get offended over these little things that happen within our, our, our religious bubble in our churches. We get offended. We become upset at them. We stop talking to them. We do back to them what they have done to us. And we cut them off. I can't have anything to do with that person anymore. Listen, if that's the way we're treating people in our own church, we are not ready to meet the crisis at the close. We're just not ready. We need to go back to the garden. We need to go back into the garden. We need to go back before the time of the garden of Gethsemane. And we need to enter into that prayer closet and say, Father, give me this profound love that is not human but is divine to be able to love the worst offenders in my life who will betray me as Judas betrayed Jesus. Are we going to have Judases in our lives in the closing scenes of the earth's history? Yes, we're going to have more than one. There are going to be many that betray us. We've got to think about this stuff. Unless we enter into Jesus' experience... We are in great danger of entering into Judas's experience. Unless we enter into the Garden of Gethsemane and become possessed with divinity, we may be possessed with humanity and do the unthinkable. We may become the ones who are the worst enemy in the household instead of standing where Jesus stood. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is a reality. We're, 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 we, are, we are right there. It is staring us in the eyes. Where are you in this scenario? Look at the picture that's been painted. Where are you? Where are you standing? What group are you part of? Are you a Judas? Are you the mob? Are you the disciples? Are you Jesus? Where are you standing right now in your experience with Christ? We're so lukewarm in the, in the Seventh-day Adventist church. We're so lukewarm and Laodicean that we don't even have a proper conception of where we are at in our religious experience. And that's why I challenged you last night to pray and ask God, you show me where I'm at in my prayer experience. Because we even deceive our own selves, thinking that we're better than we really are. So we see this Jesus. He comes from the garden. He's perfectly calm and serene. He has the peace of God that passes all understanding. As he there meets the mob, he turns and looks at his betrayer right in the eyes, and he calls him friend. This is how Jesus meets the crisis as it begins in his life. Now let's turn to the other side, Luke chapter 22. What happens with the disciples? Luke chapter 22 And verse, beginning in verse 49. Luke 22 and beginning in verse 49 through 51. Scripture says this. And when they which were about him saw what would follow, this is the disciples, they said unto him, Lord... Shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear 
and healed him. There is so much in those three verses. It's just, it's very profound. So, Jesus, we see him. He's calm. He's dignified. He's put together. He's got the peace of God. The disciples come, and and they see Jesus. They're expecting him to disappear when that divine presence happens. But he stands there, waiting for the will of the Father to be performed in his life. It's been confirmed in his mind what God's will was for him. And so, he stood there knowing that not leaving would cost him his life. So he stands there. And the disciples are paranoid. They're petrified of what's going to happen. And they say to Jesus, should we pick up swords and fight for you? Peter doesn't even wait to ask the question or to hear the answer. He just pulls his sword out and he starts hacking away at the the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. It's peculiar to me that Jesus tells Peter, put that thing away. And then he touched the side of that guy's head and he reversed what Peter had done. Now let me ask you a question. Did Peter struggle with pride? Yes or no? Yes. He, he struggled with pride. In fact, all the disciples struggled with pride. They were, in fact, we're going to look at it tonight in our little Vesper service that even as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, they're arguing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest. What a way to spend your time right before you're entering the crisis. But that's where many of us are right now. Peter struggled with pride. Jesus rebuked him. What happens to somebody who is full of pride and they get rebuked? They become offended. They become offended. And Peter became deeply offended by what Jesus said. Listen to this. This is from Desire of Ages, page 697. It says, In their indignation and fear, Peter proposed. Who proposed? Peter proposed that they save themselves. How many of you think that that's a foolish thing to say? Peter proposed that they save themselves following this suggestion. The suggestion of who? They all forsook him and fled. Judas led the mob that came to take Jesus. Peter led the disciples to flee from Jesus. And here we find that the devil has many different lines of attack. And he can be successful if we're not plugged in to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it's interesting to me that if we're not in tune with God's leading in our lives, we may be in danger of inflicting damage and pain on someone as Peter did to the servant's servant's ear, that Jesus will have to come along behind us and right the wrong that we had done. That was not his desire to have this guy's ear cut off. In fact, he probably heard better afterwards than he did before. But irrespective, Jesus had to repair the damage that Peter had done because Peter was not plugged in to God and his will for him and his life. 
And some of us may be tempted to do the same thing. We, if we're not plugged in with God, we may do the same thing that Peter did and cause pain and suffering and damage in the life of somebody else thinking that we do God a service. You know, Jesus tells us that this will be the case in the last days, that there will be some who will think that if they kill you, they will do God a service. That's what Peter was thinking. That's what Peter was thinking. If I kill him, I'll be doing God a service. But you know, the disciples, they were so willing to fight for Jesus, but they weren't willing to pray for Jesus. They were willing to do something for him, to to take their swords out and fight, but they weren't willing to pray together with him in the garden, in the mount, or in various other places. And many of us are right there where the disciples are. We're happy to be involved in church functions. We're happy to be involved in church activities. We're happy to help out in Sabbath school and whatever it may be. But when it comes to our personal devotional life, it is floundering miserably. And we're sleepwalking spiritually. Oh, friends, let's look to Jesus and get our priorities straight here. Tap into God every morning and allow him to live out his life within us. There will be those who, like Peter and the rest of the disciples are ready to put up a great fight and do what is right during the time of the crisis. But their great fight will only be a preamble of their great flight away from the hour of persecution as Peter led the disciples away from Judas. But I ask you something here this evening. What are you doing right now to prepare for this crisis that is right before us? Think about your week this past week. How much time did you spend in prayer? How much time did you spend in Bible study? And how much time did you spend watching TV? How much time did you spend surfing the internet how much time did you spend in foolish conversations that have no bearing on your eternal salvation listen friends we we just got to cut to the chase there is no need for us to beat around the bush any longer we need to start doing some comparisons and see where are my priorities at in my spiritual walk with the lord Is my priority Facebook? Is my priority catching the favorite episode on television and maybe five more other ones afterwards that I wasn't planning on watching but I just got sucked into because I was there in front of the tube? Or is my focus and priority growing in my relationship with God and following Jesus out into the wilderness of prayer and Bible study, following God's will in your life and getting deep with the Father? Where you spend the bulk of your time is where your heart lies. We need to do these spiritual inventories every now and then, and they are so uncomfortable to do, aren't they? They're so uncomfortable to do that some of us at some times are even tempted not to go to church because we might get a check in our spiritual walk. Or we're tempted to not spend that time with the Lord that we know we should in the morning because we might get a spiritual 
rebuke. Brothers and sisters, we need to do a spiritual inventory and see where am I at in my spiritual walk with the Lord. Look at the disciples. Look at Jesus. Who do you want to be when the crisis comes? What you do, listen, what you do in preparation for the crisis will determine if you are a disciple or if you are Jesus. It's not going to just happen instantaneously when the crisis comes. Some of us are just kind of flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, when the crisis comes, when things start getting bad, then we're going to get our lives together. It's too late at that point. As we can see here with the disciples, it was too late for them. They were leaning on their own strength instead of the strength of God, as Jesus was. Who do you want to be when that crisis comes? I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow his example. And it all started in the garden, in that prayer chamber, together with his father. So I ask you that question one more time as I closed in our study together last night. And that question was, where are you in your prayer education? I want this to just ring home inside of our minds. I want this to be something that we take from us, or take with us, rather, from Inspire Ohio. That this will be something that we pray in the morning. Lord, show me where I am in my prayer education. Take me from high school. Take me from uh, college. Take me on into the master's degree and the Ph.D. Give me an experience like Jesus in my prayer life. Lord, I want to be deep with you. I want to hear your voice in the morning. I want to hear Hear you guiding me in the direction that I should go. That's what David prayed in Psalms 143. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, he says, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. How many of you think that's a wonderful prayer? Beautiful prayer. I pray that all the time. That God would show me the way I should walk and allow me to hear his loving kindness in the morning. Where are you in your prayer education? May God help us all to have the experience of Jesus when that crisis comes. That we'll be able to come forth calm, peaceful, dignified, and ready to meet whatever may come our way. Is that your desire this afternoon? Pray that prayer in your heart as I close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, We've looked at the disciples. We looked at Jesus. And Lord, there's no question we want to be like Jesus. Oh God, help us. We are so reckless in our spiritual walk with you. We are so reckless and careless in our devotional and prayer time with you. We just float through life hoping that things will work out in the end. Oh, Lord, please, let us follow the example of Jesus. Let him be the guiding force in our life. May we keep our eyes fixed upon him and not on the others around us that may be discouraging. Father, please take us to greater heights in our prayer education. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. And may we get so deep with you. That if you choose to allow us to go through one of the greatest trials of our life, being betrayed by one of our own household, oh God, may it not shake our faith, but may we stay connected as Jesus did with his Father. Thank you for this great example. Thank you, dear Lord. 
In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.